Welcome to the Vulva Diaries with host Dr. Amanda Selk, bringing you the 101 on vulvovaginal health. So hi, everyone. Today we get to talk to Dr. Tanya Day, who's a gynecologist working in Newcastle, New South Wales, Australia. She also has a PhD in the pathology of lichen planus. Hi, Dr. Day. Hello, Dr. Selk. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for joining us today. Can you tell us what you think about where we should take our biopsies and what areas we should maybe avoid? Definitely. So it's important to biopsy each distinct area on the vulva. So if you have a white plaque and a glazed red patch, you'll want to biopsy each one of those lesions and put those specimens in two different pots. When you're looking within a particular area to biopsy, you'll want to aim for the worst looking area or the area with the most marked change. When it comes to ulcers and fissures, You have to go off to the side enough to get some of the intact skin. And then when you think there might be immunobolus disease, you want to take intact skin just a couple of millimeters from the erosion. Keeping all that in mind, if you can, you try to avoid the periclitoral area, the midline posterior fourchette or the midline perineum, right by the urethra and right by the anus. And that's mostly around the ease of the procedure and the comfort of the procedure and also how well it heals and how quickly it heals. Yeah, I think most people are scared to biopsy the clitoris in general. Yeah, I have done that in the rooms and with enough lignocaine, it is possible, but it's nice to have the alternative option of going to the operating room. Does the type of biopsy that you do matter, whether it's a punch biopsy or another type of biopsy? Yeah, you want to tailor your biopsy to what you think the diagnosis might be. So if you're thinking you have an inflammatory skin condition or potentially a cancer or precancer, you need to get enough dermis that the pathologist can analyze the tissue. And so you want to aim for a punch biopsy. Four millimeters is the ideal width of it. And you want to have a depth to about five millimeters for hair bearing skin and at least three millimeters on hairless skin or non-carotenized squamous mucosa. You can also achieve this with a suture-assisted SNP biopsy. Now, there are sometimes things that you just need to remove at their base, like a pedunculated lesion and something you're sure is benign. And in those, you can do a shave biopsy. And then if you're in the vagina or the cervix or the anus, a Tischler biopsy forceps is really handy, and that usually provides an adequate specimen. And then sometimes you'll have a small lesion that you're worried might be a precancer. And in these, you can do an excisional biopsy, but you have to be careful not to crush the tissue. And if it's a a fairly large specimen, you need to pin it out on a cork board so it doesn't fold up. And that makes the processing difficult in the lab. So what kind of things do you think it's important for the clinicians to write on their pathology requisitions? The first thing I guess to say about that is that if you really have no idea what's going on, you're totally unable to generate a differential diagnosis, it might be best to defer the biopsy and refer to someone who has an idea of what's going on because the best biopsies are taken in a situation where you have an idea of what's happening. And then if that criteria is met, you want to label the biopsy with its location 
in a way that reflects the laterality of it and also the anatomic site using the words to describe the site. For example, right inner labium minus or right side perineum. The only time you should ever use a clock face to describe the location is if you're in a really restricted area. For example, the hymen or the anal verge. When you've outlined where in the circumferential extent of the vulva you are, then you can use a clock face. You also want to write down your differential diagnosis, or if you are not sure what that is, you should write down a really descriptive dermatologic view of what's going on. So for example, like pink, well-demarcated plaque with a rough texture. And Also, it's important to write down if this woman has ever had a history of a previous vulval cancer or a vulval precancer, and you'll want to specify if that was differentiated VIN or an HPV-related process. Also, if the woman has a history of lichen planus, lichen sclerosis, or you suspect mycosis. Does anything else help the pathologist? Absolutely. So taking a clinical photograph, and you'll, of course, get consent according to your local guidelines really helps to engage with your pathologist and to participate fully in multidisciplinary team meetings. A photograph allows you to, in a difficult case, consult with expert colleagues in your community or around the world. And photographs also help to document the response to treatment and change over time. In absence of a photograph, you can draw a schematic both in your notes and or on the requisition form and then write down with X's where you took your biopsies. And it's also helpful for the pathologist if you make a comprehensive assessment, meaning that if you're worried about mycosis or bacterial or viral infections, that you take scrapings and swabs to investigate those issues. When you get back these long pathology descriptions, I think a lot of clinicians just look at the diagnosis line. How does reading the descriptions actually help clinical people? Yeah, that's what I did for many years myself. And then doing this research and and PhD taught me how important it is to understand what's going on in the pathology report. And the reason it's helpful is it gives you a sense of whether the diagnosis that's given to you on the report is a good fit for what you think is going on. And it also helps you to assess if you're receiving a quality service. A pathology report has four major sections. The first one is the clinical notes, what you have written down, then the macroscopic description, which includes your labeling, and then a comment on the number, the size, the shape, the orientation, and the gross appearance of the specimen. Then there's the microscopic description. This is really the meat of the sandwich, so to speak. So this goes through, firstly, the site. Is it hair-bearing skin, hairless skin, or non-keratinized epithelium that we also call squamous mucosa, or is the site unsure? Then it goes through level by level, all of the epithelium and the stroma. And then there's a comment about whether or not any special stains were obtained. The next part is the diagnosis. So that is where we jump to. And that diagnosis can take a couple of formats. It can be just a diagnosis, or it can be a reaction pattern with a list of potential diagnoses, or it can be a summary of the findings and then some diagnostic suggestions. And then the last part that's not, it's sort of an optional part, is the comment. And that's where the pathologist can write down any interpretations. And these are subject to the knowledge and experience of the pathologist. 
every once in a while, a pathologist will actually cite a recent article in their comment. And that's when you know you have a pathology star. If your pathologist is maybe not so detailed and they don't give you a diagnosis, but rather a pattern, something like says psoriaform, what does that actually mean? So there's six different groupings of inflammatory reaction patterns when you are assessing the histopathology of inflammatory skin diseases. And psoriasiform is one of them. And basically that just means thickened skin. So at all the different layers of the epithelium, it's all thickened. And this is something that we see in psoriasis, but we also see in chronic dermatitis or otherwise called lichen simplex chronicus. And we also see it in mycosis, so a candida or a tinea. And these three things are, in most cases, are indistinguishable on histopathology. So the pathologist can't tell you what's causing the thickened skin. They can just tell you that they see that pattern. And then you have to use your clinical judgment and your other investigations to figure out which one of those things is the most likely. And you said there were six patterns. So what are the other common patterns? Of the six, three of them are really common on the vulva and three are quite uncommon. So the other two really common ones are spongiotic and lichenoid. And spongiotic, it means that there's a lot of edema within the epithelium and there's also a little bit of inflammation around the superficial vasculature and that the inflammation also goes up from the stroma or the dermis underneath the skin up into the skin, and that's called exocytosis. And this pattern we see in acute dermatitis. It could be due to an irritant, due to an allergen, or it could be due to internal itch, scratch, sensation, or atopy. Again, the pathologist can't tell what's causing the spongiotic pattern. They can just tell you what your, your options are for diagnosis. Then the lichenoid pattern is also called interface dermatitis. And basically the pathologist sees a band-like accumulation of inflammatory cells, meaning lymphocytes, sometimes plasma cells or eosinophils. And they can also see that the lymphocytes are damaging the basal layer of the epithelium. And this is the pattern we see in lichen sclerosis and lichen planus, and it also sometimes represents a drug reaction. Then the three less common patterns are vesiculobulbous, and what folds into this is acantholytic. And basically that just means that there is a loss of cohesion between the difference between the cells of the epithelium. So the cells are falling apart and they do this to varying degrees. And we see this in some of the genetic conditions where there's an issue with how the cells stick to one another. And those are things like Darrier's disease and Haley-Haley disease. We also see this in bullous pemphigoid and the other pemphigoid types of, of skin problems. And it also shows up in things like Steven Johnson syndrome. So those are immune complex diseases. The fifth pattern is granulomatous, and that's when you have a collection of histiocytes. So basically a round area of lots of inflammatory cells. And this is usually due to there being indigestible foreign body within the skin. And we see this pattern in Crohn's disease and in sarcoidosis. And the final pattern is vasculopathic. That just means that there's a lot of inflammation of the vessels themselves. And we can see that in things like urticaria and ulcerative conditions like Bichette's and apthosis. 
So where can people learn more about all these patterns? These six categories are actually the sub chapters of weed and skin pathology, which is the major dermatopathology textbook in addition to McKee's. The IWSVD has made freely available the 2006 document on the pathologic classification of these diseases, and that was updated in 2016. That one does describe eight different classifications, but it separates out lichen sclerosis from the other lichenoid patterns, and it separates out vesiculobulbous and acantholytic. And then the 2011 IWSVD document on the terminology and classification of vulvar dermatologic disorders talks a bit more about the three most common patterns on the vulva, that spongiotic, cerisiform, and lichenoid. Finally, DermNet New Zealand has a page on inflammatory skin pathology, and that doesn't use the exact same titles that I've just discussed, but it's a really helpful overview. That's very useful. So moving on to a sort of different area with really practical questions and maybe somewhat controversial, do you think steroids mask the diagnosis of lichen sclerosis or other diagnoses? Because sometimes you're told to hold off on steroids for a month before you biopsy. Other people think it doesn't matter. What do you think? I'm not sure there's a good evidence-based answer for this. I think so much of it depends on our own health setting. So for me, we don't have the ability to reliably see women in a timely fashion. And there's a huge number of GPs over a wide geographic distribution that refer to us. And in addition, we have very little administrative support. So it's not really practical in my practice to ask women and GPs to stop treatment. So I have done a lot of biopsies in women who've already been on many weeks or months of potent topical corticosteroids. And I find that I still get results on nearly all the biopsies I take. My general rule for it is if the skin looks abnormal, then you're going to be pretty likely to get a result. Again, if you have a pathologist that has experience in vulval dermatology. We also have extremely long wait times where I work. And I find the other danger is that sometimes people hold off treating patients because they can't biopsy and they're waiting for you. And that also does a disservice to the patients in many cases. Absolutely. The patients can suffer for a long time if they're told to not use any steroids while they're waiting to see you. And similar uh, question would be, why when you biopsy like in planus, do you often get this nonspecific result? Sometimes you're lucky and it says like in planus, but a lot of the time when you think it's there, your biopsies are nonspecific. Why do you think that is? I think we compare lichen planus to lichen sclerosis a lot. And when it comes to pathology, that's not really a fair comparison. Because if you have a lichenoid tissue reaction with dermal sclerosis, that is lichen sclerosis. And it's one of the easiest pathologic diagnoses to make. And that's really because this band of sclerosis is so obvious. But with lichen planus, by definition, it does not have sclerosis. And so instead, it has a lichenoid tissue reaction. And that means that it can be lichen planus. It can be lichen sclerosis that doesn't have any sclerosis under it. It's also called non-sclerotic LS. Or it can be a lichenoid drug reaction or any other number of much rarer conditions. So you have to use the appearance of the epithelium, so the architecture of it, 
to figure out if lichen planus is more or less likely, along with some other clues. And that just means it's a lot more difficult to do. There is going to be a document soon coming out by the IWSVD about the diagnosis of non-sclerotic lichen sclerosis and a different document about the diagnosis of lichen planus. So that'll help explore some of the different clues that pathologists can use to figure out which one is more likely. The other thing that's tricky with lichen planus is there's three different types that occur on the vulva. There's erosive, classic, and hypertrophic, and each one of them looks different clinically and also looks different on histopathology. And the classic and hypertrophic types are pretty uncommon, so a lot of clinicians and pathologists aren't that familiar with them, and these can just get read as a nonspecific finding. And then finally, erosive lichen planus actually has two different patterns when it comes to the basal layer damage. There's the degenerative pattern, which is the one that's been traditionally understood and actually is more representative of classic lichen planus. And then there's the regenerative pattern, and that one has only recently been described. So again, is still a bit unfamiliar to the larger pathology community. So the, co- the combination of all of those things makes it difficult. And then on top of that, sometimes as clinicians, we might not have a, an optimal situation when it comes to the timing of the biopsy or the site of the biopsy. So we have to keep all of that in mind when we're reading our reports and think about what our clinical impression is telling us and what the symptoms of the woman are, and that shiny redness on the vulva can be lots of different types of things. It can be lichen planus, but it can also be atrophy. It can be vulvovaginal candidiasis. DIV and and plasma cell vulvitis can cause shiny redness. And even vulvodynia can sometimes have a very similar appearance to mild erosive lichen planus. And I think that one of the papers that you published actually in the last few years that's really important is that people can have both lichen sclerosis and lichen planus at the same time, correct? Absolutely. And we have no idea how common that is, but once you start looking for it, you tend to see quite a lot of it. Yeah, I teach that to everybody now after you guys publish that paper. I think it's very important for people to know. Thank you very much. You're welcome. So. What should you do if your biopsy doesn't make sense? Yeah, this is interesting because I think as clinicians, we sometimes feel like pathology is um, a purer science than what we do every day and that it it should provide us a definitive answer. But I want to remind people that pathology is an art form just like clinical medicine is. And we do have to assess the pathology report and put it into the larger context of what's going on with the woman. And we also should keep in mind that after an initial read, it is possible to do more assessment of that specimen. And that's because in non-cancer skin biopsies, the pathologist starts with three levels and then a periodic acid shift stain. And so they can go back and request deeper levels and more stains on the residual tissue. But this does take time. And it, it, we have to keep in mind that a quick turnaround on our pathology isn't necessarily a good indicator of the quality of the service. So let's say we read through our, our microscopic report and it just doesn't seem to match. For example, they either don't tell you where the biopsy was taken, they don't tell you the site, or they seem to be making a lot of vague comments about 
atypia and inflammation, but they don't really seem to be describing what's going on with the epithelium. You may then decide that it's best to call the pathologist and just ask what's going on, maybe request to review the slides at a multidisciplinary meeting. And that gives you an opportunity to show a clinical photo that you have. Or another option is to just take the case to a different pathologist and ask for another opinion. And we, we have to keep in mind too that there's a couple of different ways that the reports can not match our clinical impressions. So sometimes the report is an overread. For example, I recently had a case where I took off a small white nodule on the buttock and it looked very benign and the whole rest of the vulval skin was normal. And the read I got back was a squamous cell carcinoma and it just didn't fit at all. And there was no comment in that report about any abnormal skin or about whether this cancer was HPV-related or HPV-independent. And so I asked for a reassessment of the specimen, and several different pathologists reviewed it, and they did additional stains. They did a P16 and a P53. And then I got back a revised report, which was inverted follicular keratosis, which is a totally benign tumor of the skin appendage. So you can have a situation where someone has told you that something's a cancer or a precancer, but you just don't have that suspicion at all, usually because the rest of the vulva looks normal. You can also have an underread situation where you're really worried about a treatment-resistant area in lichen sclerosis. You, you think it might be differentiated VIN, but you get back a report of wart. And that woman has never previously had any HPV-related disease, and it doesn't look like a wart. That's a common misread of differentiated VIN. So again, you go through the same process where you have your photo, you make a phone call, you request an MDT, or you, if none of those things are available, you try to obtain another opinion and provide as much clinical information as you can to help inform that opinion. And then the final situation that arises is when you just get a non-read and it appears that maybe your biopsy went to someone who's quite unfamiliar with vulval pathology and the differential diagnoses on the vulva. That's a time again where you can try to route that biopsy differently in future, and then you can have it reassessed. And are there special vulval pathologists? There are special vulval pathologists. It is a, a field that requires a bit of extra training, very much like doing clinical work on the vulva. The pathologists have to have training both in gynecologic pathology and in dermatopathology. They also need to have enough of a regular caseload of vulval specimens that they become familiar with the range of conditions. They have to stay up to date with all of the terminology and research advances in this field because it's an area where the science is developing rapidly, mostly because it hit, for many years there was very little work done on vulval disease. And then ideally the pathologists who specialize in the vulva are very involved with their clinicians and they attend an effective multidisciplinary team meeting to go over some of these more challenging cases. If you're the person in your city or town that is focused on the vulva and you haven't established a go-to pathologist, it's good to have a think about if there would be anyone in your area who would be interested Ideally, this would be someone who already had some experience in either derm or gyne pathology, who wanted to expand their expertise, someone who's really enthusiastic about learning, enjoys challenges and puzzles, and someone who's a good communicator.
I think that sounds very reasonable. Do you have any last take-home points for our listeners? My take-home points are to develop a good sense of the different diagnoses so that you can write your brief but pertinent information on the pathology request form about what you think is going on, to biopsy each morphologically distinct area on the vulva and then label those with the descriptions and the locations, and to try to just over time practice reading those microscopic descriptions, look up some of the words that maybe are unfamiliar, and take that first step in reaching out to your pathologist to try to develop a relationship with a particular person who can work with you to try to identify the best fit diagnosis for women with vulval disease. Ultimately, our treatment depends on having the best diagnosis. And that's where we see women really improve is when they know what's going on, they have confidence in the diagnosis, and then you can give them the treatment that is known to be really helpful for that diagnosis. That sounds great. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you for inviting me to speak. It's been really wonderful. And that's, again, Dr. Tanya Day, who's a gynecologist working in Newcastle, New South Wales, and also has some expertise in pathology. Mm-hmm.